0: Nonprofit organizations exist to ignite change, to push, to advocate for change that will make the world more fair, more just, more beautiful. What kind of person, what are the attributes that draw someone to this work? What attributes come to mind for you? I'm listening. Uh, fierce. Folks who don't take no for an answer. Gritty. Persistent. Feisty. I was a nonprofit leader. I accept all these characterizations that I bet most of you do, too. What I remember about my days at an LGBTQ organization back in the late 90s was how blatantly homophobic people were, the hate mail I received after every media appearance. I remember one media personality telling me that if they could work to have my children taken from me, they would. I remember these experiences, and sometimes they would lead me to burst into tears, and other times they made me so very, very angry at the injustice of it all. I've worked with public defender organizations in my current role, these attorneys ensure that folks have access to representation and the system fails their clients at every turn. And these public defenders lose their cases a lot. And angry folks like me and angry folks like these public defenders then head back to the office and are part of a staff of a nonprofit organization. And I believe that the attributes that make you the best possible advocate can make you a pretty lousy colleague. I found a woman who tackles this very issue. How nonprofit organizations navigate the internal conflict that comes with the hardwired DNA of the fierce advocates who work there every day. When the values you espouse for the world or for your clients don't show up at the office. It's not that the values don't show up. They're ignored, almost rejected. Advocates take their anger out on each other. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like if these organizations recognize the issue, and what folks like my guest and her team are doing about it. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits, I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at Joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission, to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Arthi Rungan works with white and BIPOC changemakers to transform internal cultures and systems and build effective, values-aligned strategies for change. Over the past 22 years, Arthi has been shaped by her experiences organizing with other women of color as part of Incite Women and Trans People Against Violence and for Climate Justice with 350.org, her mid-career experience as a stay-at-home mom, her training in strategic planning with the American Friends Services Committee, And her experiences as grantmaker at Bread and Rose's Community Fund in Philadelphia, it's a lot of experience. And this experience has allowed her to make significant contributions to individual and community healing, solidarity building, wealth redistribution, and strategic planning in support of community-led efforts to make change. Arthi holds a doctoral degree in community and prevention research in psychology from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Arthi, welcome and On behalf of the nonprofit leaders hungry to understand this phenomenon and even hungrier to create a culture shift within their organization, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm so happy to be here with you and to be able to share some of what we at Dragonfly Partners do and what we've learned in our work with organizations around the country and and around the world. So
0: first up, Let's talk a little bit about how you found your way to this kind of work. And I know folks would like to hear about
1: Dragonfly Partners as well. Absolutely. As you heard from my introduction, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I started (laughs) out doing direct service work, actually was a theater major in college. I got politicized when I was working at a rape crisis center and got real angry. And as you say, right, you get angry. I became an activist, an organizer, but I'm also a researcher and an educator. So I've done all these different roles. I've worked in nonprofits or other change-making organizations throughout my career. And during my graduate school studies, I learned a lot about program development, strategic planning, and diversity, equity, inclusion. And so when I had the opportunity to join Dragonfly, I jumped right at it. Dragonfly Partners has been around since 2011. And we are a group of consultants who have a variety of skills and experience related to social change, to organizational development, organizing, negotiation, coaching, psychology, fundraising, the list goes on. So we really are an eclectic bunch. But one thing we all have in common is that we believe that how your organization functions Actually matters in how I was. I was actually
0: going to ask you if you had to sit at a kitchen table and talk to a twelve-year-old about what Dragonfly Partners does. What would you say?
1: Yeah. So what I'd say is we help change makers get unstuck when they're feeling stuck. That's really the the bottom line. And a lot of orgs are feeling stuck these days. No kidding. No (laughs) kidding. Uh, I'm sure, like you, we are also very busy um, these days.
0: So, you mentioned when you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago that this sort of inside outside values issue has been top of mind for you for the last bunch of years. And I wondered, sort of, how did it come to be kind of an area of focus or expertise for you?
1: Sure. I mean, I've always been interested in group dynamics and how they kind of shape the choices that we make. And My, From my perspective, it's really people who make up movements, who make up these organizations, right? And we can have the smartest strategy in the world, but if we can't talk to each other or we can't have good fights that actually get us somewhere, then it doesn't matter how good our strategy is, the work is not going to happen well. So that's kind of what brought me into really focusing on that intersection.
0: Yeah, I some business guru, right? Culture eats strategy for lunch. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so at the open of this podcast, I described what I experienced at GLAD and what I have seen, particularly with public defender organizations. And I wanted you to reflect on did you agree? Were that was I overly simplistic? Is that the presenting issue or friendly amendments?
1: Sure. I mean, I do agree with a lot of what you said. We who are drawn to social change work are often advocates. And we've learned to direct our anger about injustice to making change. And then we go into our workplaces and we kind of railroad over people, even when you know we we feel like we need to dig our heels in, even when it's our colleagues that we're digging our heels in with. One friendly amendment I would offer is that in addition to these folks who are advocates, there's another group of people who are drawn to this kind of work which are caregivers. And caregivers at times can be very conflict avoided. Right. I'm a caregiver myself, I can say that we silence ourselves a lot in order to prop other people's up or keep the peace, and that's equally problematic and it's even worse when these people are together, right, in the same space. <laughs> Do we have a third
0: group, Arthi? Is there a third group in these nonprofit organizations which are sort of the the backbone folks, the foundational folks, the fundraiser maybe, or the CFO or the operations people? Where do they fit
1: in? Yeah. I mean, those folks, it's actually interesting. I've worked with a Black director of operations for an advocacy organization who is part of a group of Black women who are directors of operations. And they're in a real tough position because they're trying to make things move forward and get things done and are often really overlooked because people don't see that as the work right? The things that they're doing. And actually without them, we wouldn't be able to do any of what we do. <laughs> so. we're,
0: we're actually going to dig into this a little bit more, but I have experienced that group of people as being particularly targeted because they're often seen by the program folks. And again, you know, let's be really clear. this is This isn't a gross generalization, but it is also not something that we you know every single organization experiences sure. but but i do believe that there are times when the operations folks are seen as less than because or that they are they work for the advocates
1: yeah and that can be even more problematic when those people are people of color right because right we're then leaning into some pretty messed up race dynamics. and de- I,
0: am th- I am thinking too, Arthur, that, sorry to interrupt you, I am thinking that a number of people that are listening to this just looked in the mirror and said, oh, that's what's happening at my shop, right? And sometimes people don't even know. So problematic culture, I guess, there's lots of things that cause problematic cultures, right? And this idea that angry advocates come home and they're angry in their offices is certainly one reason, but it can be due to lots of
1: other things too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one piece in the puzzle. I think that there obviously there are real issues you know around identity, race, class, gender, et cetera, that show up in our organizations, as well as differences related to age and to, like you said, role, like what am I trying to do? And quite often, it's also sometimes can be just about our differences in how we think the work is supposed to get done, you know? So we we talk about like, sometimes it's about underlying differences in our theory of change, and we think that we're trying to do the same thing, but we have really different ways of, of thinking to do that. Um, and some of it is just about personalities and we get stuck in our, our own way of doing things. And one of my colleagues, Rebecca Subar, who's a partner in Dra- Dragonfly, just wrote a book called When to Talk, When to Fight, um, mm-hmm. which I recommend to. will we'll put really- it in the show notes. Yes, please do. It's an awesome book coming from her background as a a negotiator, conflict negotiator, to help people think about, you know, this question. And she notes that, you know, some of us are naturally drawn to be fighters and others of us are naturally drawn to be talkers. And we tend to lead with what we're comfortable with, right? Rather than leading with what's actually going to be an effective way for us to get what we need. And sometimes that depends on the power differences of the people around us, but we don't start with that asking ourselves that question. So yeah. those are some of the other but, dynamics in
0: common. how about leadership? Where does that where does that come into play in the sort of I got a problematic culture? Do I do I have a problematic I could have a problematic
1: leader who doesn't see it or as part of the problem, couldn't I? Absolutely. Absolutely. Problematic leaders are part of what we see. And I think, too, a lot of leaders who, you know, have come up in the work because of their passion for the issue, because of their drive, because they're charismatic, but who aren't necessarily great at managing other people. Right. And so that can really show up when you're trying to get your team to do the work on a day to day basis. Right.
0: I also and not to pick on lawyers, but maybe it will (laughs) sound like I am. Lawyers aren't necessarily intrinsically good managers.
1: No, that's not what they're trained to do. Right. And it's uh, not what they're trained to do.
0: It's not what they're trained to do. And uh, I will tell you, and I bet that's true of the coaches at Dragonfly too, that, oh my goodness, so much of the coaching that I do with CEOs of, you know, large nonprofit organizations is effective. What does effective management look like? Which, by the way, are chops that I got in the for-profit sector, not the not-for-profit sector, right? right?
1: I mean, we, when we come in through for-profit, we, you get trained. In business schools, you get trained how to, how to be managers in a lot of ways that we don't when we come in as passion-first people who are experts in an issue, not necessarily experts in running an organization. And a lot of the people who end up even if the leader the top leader if it's a it's kind of a hierarchical organization is doing their best it's hard for them to hire like that next level of leaders who have those good management skills too so it can Indeed. be at any level in the organization where you see these issues crop up too so i'm
0: interested in how clients come to you and how they present the issue, right? So I'll get people who, I hear this all the time in the nonprofit sector, I can't raise money. I can't find board members. And those are symptoms of some other illness, right? Some other dysfunction in your organization. Something else is not clear. And so I wonder, when a client comes your way, do they come to you and say, I have a culture problem, And if they don't say that, what is it that they do say that you then have to diagnose? Because that's what I love about my job is sort of the Columbo-like diagnostics, right? Like, what do people come to you to say they need help with? And how do you then lead them to say, kind of, you have a culture problem?
1: Yeah, two things. One, I would say we get a lot of people who come to us wanting to do strategic planning, And what we, I mean, we've literally started doing strategic planning for our organization and then had to sort of scrap all of it, do a bunch of work with staff around just talking to each other, dealing with issues that have been coming up. And then the team that we worked with saying like, actually, we know what we want our strategic plan to be and doing it themselves, right? Because if you can actually work well with each other. A lot of times you don't need somebody from the outside to come and help you. Right. You know your work. So, it's really about knowing how to be together and talk to each other. So, I'd say that's number 1 and the number 2 is diversity, equity, inclusion or racial justice work inside of organizations. People name that thinking like we want to make sure that we're, you know, doing right by people or that we're, you know, where we should be. When a lot of times the issues in their organizations don't really have as much to do with race equity issues per se, but are really about some of these other things. So,
0: right. Yeah. Interesting. Although we have, um, you know, I run a membership site for board and staff leaders of small to mid-sized nonprofits and are working with a DEI consultant on how to create a real sense of belonging for diverse leaders in that space. And as Pablo will tell me, DEI is everything, everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. Totally. And so if you can't talk to someone because of a difference, whatever that difference might be, right, if you are treating a Gen Z and referring to them in, the, in their restroom as an entitled, you know, snot, right? Yeah. And I have heard that. right? You have a culture problem because you are not giving people equal agency. And that is the E in DEI, right? And so I I think it's, that's why I really do like the word belonging, because belonging doesn't say race. It doesn't say ability. It says, am I valued, right? Do I belong here? And I I feel like that's, so it's very interesting that DEI actually, DEI work opens up a whole can of worms because when you start to talk about belonging, you're actually talking about such a bigger conversation. I mean, such a big conversation.
1: And how you create belonging really involves, uh, for a lot of folks, learning a lot of skills that they never learned that are kind of basic skills in some ways around just like Connecting with other people, meeting them where they're at, you know, getting to know folks, being curious. These are often a lot lot of the places that we start with folks and, you know, active listening, all of those kinds of skills that we think of as soft skills that are not necessarily, you know, strategic planning or knowing how to run a campaign or all of those other kinds of things, right? Right. But people need to be able to do that in order to, and it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean getting in people's business or people kind of feel like it means you have to like be best friends with everybody. That's not the case either, right? It's about being able to have a genuine interaction with somebody enough so that, you know, you can work together. So (laughs) That's meaningful.
0: (laughs) Walk us through how an organization or its leader becomes... Self-aware that they have a culture problem. And maybe how do you help them sort of move
1: them on that uh, towards that conclusion? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, we start with listening to people at all levels of the organization. So we can really get a sense of what's happening across the board. And, you know, we often will, as you said, we do our own diagnosis and we we present that to leaders, but we're doing that. While we're also meeting with them, usually weekly to hear from them about, you know, what the challenges they are that are having and somewhat doing some coaching along the way as well to the point where we can support them to see this is a culture issue so that the kind of the diagnosis from talking to the whole organization, as well as that work with them individually kind of helps them to get to that place of seeing it. But a lot of times too, you know, it might involve doing some work with several different members of the leadership team coming together and just getting them to open up into have a real conversation and sometimes having a facilitator in that conversation can create opportunities to talk in ways that maybe people don't feel like they can without somebody else there to kind of run interference or hold up.
0: So let's say I'm the leader of an organization and I get it. Mm-hmm. And I get the dynamics here and I get that you know let's stay in the public defense field for a moment or the legal advocacy field and I and I get that those folks are the you know the fierce advocates and that we have, I don't know if we use the word lateral violence anymore, but that's a phrase that came, that was introduced to me when I was at GLAAD, and, you know, targeting the operations people or, you know, that kind of dynamic. So you also, so I'm the leader and I get mission control, we have a problem. And the operations people actually get that we have a problem because they're actually the folks being targeted. Yeah. And I hate to use that phrase, yeah. but how is it? How do you actually tackle those fierce, feisty advocates who are, in fact, igniting some of this without triggering a lot of defensiveness or without them saying, well,
1: those operations people do work for me? Mm-hmm yeah I think these days i I haven't heard people saying those operations people work for me in that in that plane of a way because I think people know enough to not say it. <laughs> no, i and
0: I right, and i i I was putting I was putting you know sort of the thought balloon out of came out of my mouth,
1: yeah, I think that it there's a lot of work to be done around setting up some a lot of what we do is around setting up agreements within a group about how they want to be together and how they can practice some skills around assuming that they actually are on on the same team. Mm. And what does that look like? Can you give me an
0: example of uh, some of those agreements?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we often will say is that we want to speak from our own experience. We want to you know assume good intent but acknowledge our impact on the other people in the room things like just even you know being present in the space and a lot of what we're working on with a lot of groups right now is for people to even notice that they're getting defensive right and so because i don't think there is a way to to help people not be defensive i think we all get defensive that's just human nature but if I can feel myself getting defensive, then I can do something about that. I can take those deep breaths I need to take or get up and walk and get my coffee or whatever I need to do so that I can kind of deal with that and come back. That's a lot of what we're working with folks on is helping them to do some of that regulation of themselves so that they can be present and listen and participate, not to silence themselves. Cause I think a lot of people feel that too. That's actually another dynamic we see is a lot of people feeling like I don't want to say anything because I'm gonna get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. And that is equally problematic, right? It's, it's it's not, we don't want you to erase yourself. You're an important part of this team. We're all important part of the team. And so there must be a way for us to be able to actually talk to each other where we can all be a part of coming up with, you know, how we're gonna to work together. So that is what we work on a lot is helping people right size their participation and sort of feel the sense of themselves as part of a group, right? Because I think a lot of advocates also see themselves very much as individuals. And and that savior kind of mentality is there too.
0: Yes. Right? Yes. So these kinds of conversations can feel real processy to yes. a fierce advocate who gets now, curse, who gets shit done, right? How do you keep them present and engaged when you have people who are doers, mm-hmm. who are who are in this journey? And yeah. I think that's that's a big issue, like for folks who bring in DEI consultants as well. And and so I know you do that stuff too. But but that to me, it's it's oh, this is so like I got to get back to the real work. How do you put that back against that?
1: Yeah, a lot of times it's connected to the visioning. So for visioning a world in which we're free from prisons or whatever it might be that advocates are working on, right? To remind people, to help people see that that world also requires all of us to change how we are with each other. It's not only about getting rid of the prisons or shutting them down, right? Yes. And so I think it's about really leading people a little bit into a deeper understanding of what it is they're working towards so that they can see this. If we can't get along as a multiracial group of people in who are all presumably have the same purpose, how do we expect this nation to deal with our race problem or to deal with our, whatever problem it is you're working on. So, you know, you have a responsibility to practice this shit so that we can all do this in the future. Right. And if you can't do it, then that's, challenging to your vision that you have, right?
0: Right. I think that's great. I think that the idea there in what you said was you have to make it come to life for that fierce advocate to say, I can't get to that destination unless I actually engage and put and really live the outside values inside my organization, and that's going to actually take listening, and that's going to take engagement and conversation and the kinds of things that you're actually speaking to today.
1: And to say that this is the work also, that's one of the things we say a lot. We recently put together a set of tools called In It Together, and we did that In partnership with Interrupting Criminalization, that's working with a lot of small organizations around the country, working to either defund the police or doing prison abolition work, who are also having these same kind of conflicts in their organizations. Because they are, even though they're mostly majority people of color organizations, they're also advocates or caregivers or, you know, people from different backgrounds who are trying to work together. And one of the things we have in that toolkit is a set of group agreements that you can start with. There's also a diagnostic tool that you can just ask yourself some questions if you're trying to figure out why are we stuck here? You know, so I offer that up too, to say that a lot of times those folks that you're speaking of who are kind of like get it done kind of people, they need some concrete things too. So the process part feels, you know, hard, but if you can come out of the process process with like, here's our three agreements that we are all agreeing to. And we're going to have a rule for when we practice them that we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Or, you know, here's the 10 questions that we're going to answer together and we can check this off of our list. You know, that can be helpful to those folks too, to have some real concrete ways forward instead of feeling like, oh, we're just sitting here talking, talking or listening or whatever it is, you know.
0: I I think that's great. And if those are if those resources are easily available, we can share those as part of show notes, too. Absolutely. That, absolutely. To, to help bring the work that you do to life for people would be super helpful. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab dot com slash podcast that 's nonprofitleadershiplab dot com slash podcast we 're actually having a conversation about fierce advocates and how they don 't always make the finest colleagues we 're having a conversation about the inside values of an organization not always aligning with the outside values of the work. And we're having this conversation with Arthi Kustury-Rungan, and she's with Dragonfly Partners. And when you go to their website, which is, help me,
1: www.dragonfly-partners.com
0: you're going to see the array of things they do. And it is of a cloth, but it's a really interesting portfolio of activities that they engage in. And this is a particular area of expertise of Arthi's is this sort of inside-outside culture. And I wanted to ask if you think that there are signs when you're in working with an organization that the culture change is too deep is simply too deeply engaged. Have you ever engaged with an organization where you just hit a wall? Yes,
1: for sure. I think a couple of things. One, if leadership is not genuinely invested in making a change happen, then you're it's a non-starter, really, you know. And can
0: you tell that when you when you actually interview cl- potential clients i bet you turn down the, i bet you turn down gigs when you can when you can see that right
1: yes we do we're we're somewhat choosy also because we have an emergent kind of approach where we don't have a cookie, cookie cutter kind of approach to our work so we like to go in we do our diagnosis and then we present like a proposal for how we're going to do the work with groups because every group is different from one another. And we have our toolbox, but we pull different tools out at different times, you know. I think another challenge, and so I'll say that if the leadership is not, a lot of times we get called in because staff is agitating, right, for something to happen. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's important. That's an important part of it. But if leadership is sort of trying to, you know, placate staff by bringing us in, then that's that's not going to work, unfortunately, right? And the other piece is, and this is something we're seeing a lot right now, is a challenge of rapid growth in an organization while you're trying to do organizational change. A lot of orgs are staffing up right now or have been in the last couple of years, money coming in from different foundations, funders opening up their coffers a little bit more, and people doubling and tripling their staff size without taking the time to attend to culture along the way yeah, and really make it difficult for a culture change process to take root. And partly that's just practical. It's like there's new people coming in every month and they each have to be kind of brought up to speed on like, where were we? Where are we now? Where are we trying to go? You know, and that's okay. I'm not saying never add anybody, but adding, you know, 20 people during that, maybe you need to pause and sort of right size and then get into the change process. Cause otherwise you do kind of feel like you're spinning your wheels a bit and you're very understandably focused on onboarding people and getting them into their roles. There's so, also
0: an argument I, I've seen with clients where you bring on a new cohort and then like that you stage it in such a way, right? So that you, you bring on a new cohort. I'm working with one organization right now where it was, yeah, where there's a sort of an old guard. It was a spinoff from a larger organization and it is now on its own and it's grown quite rapidly. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: the growth has happened largely with diverse folks Mm-hmm. So that you have one group of people, half the half that group is largely white, yep. was part of a larger institution, and yep. that's a very, very different kind of a mindset. Yep. And they have built a sort of a camaraderie as a group, then in comes a brand new cohort of very diverse, extremely diverse in terms of race, age, ability, deaf, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's everywhere. And Mm -hmm. you have to actually honor both cultures in some ways, right? Because you can't this is, a, there's, I don't know if you've ever done polarity mapping, but this is, a, yes. I, I think polarity mapping is a really interesting vehicle for these conversations so that you can really honor what is true about both components of the change yep. and understand sort of what, what people get and what they give up as a result of coming together in the spirit of some larger, in larger vision.
1: Absolutely. People who are, who are of the old guard, quote unquote, don't want to feel like everything they did was terrible and wrong and bad and usually it wasn't but that's often how it gets painted in a change process and you know new folks also don't want to come in and feel like they have no agency to make right. something different or they feel like hey you hired me to bring new ideas and yep. and yet you know you're you're putting walls up every time I try to bring something new so absolutely I think having that ability to, hold both things and say, we can honor the past and keep moving forward and also see that there were things in the past that we didn't do well, you know, at the time we did the best we could with the knowledge we had, but it wasn't great. (laughs) And And that goes
0: back to your, that goes back, Uh to your comment about the vision. Where do we all want to go to? That's right. Right, and I I I often take clients back to make them tell their origin story. Mm -hmm. How is it you came to exist? Mm -hmm. Right. What was that germ, and how does that live in your organization with every single person, regardless of when they arrived and what perspectives they bring to the table? Right, and I think that that can be really helpful. I've time for just a couple of more questions. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about professional development, but before I th- that's where I want to kind of end. But what I what I want to talk about is where do unions fit into all of this? This is a, you know, front page of the Chronicle of Philanthropy this month is sort of the world of unions. We're seeing it, we're mm-hmm. living it. Some nonprofit organizations have been there a long time, others are moving in that direction. Does that just talk a little bit about the role unions play in culture yeah
1: that's a great question. I think unions can be a powerful mechanism for transparency and for organizational change and also there is a way in which the way we have set up unions traditionally with the idea of you know management, and staff does in some ways create some wedge in relationship building. I don't think it has to be that way, but that is what sometimes ends up happening. And I'd say another thing is within unions themselves, right? Like there's a desire to show up as a a solid block. And there's often a lot of differences amongst people who are within unions And it can be hard to address those issues, especially for us as consultants coming from outside, right? um, To touch those issues because, you know, what happened, the union is we need to not be union-busted. We need to not be seen as anti-union. We're not actually be, we're not trying to be anti-union, but we want to, you know, support unions to do that internal work as well. So it can be challenging. I think it requires a lot of thoughtfulness. And I think there's some ways in which we need to being bring in there's a certain masculinity i'll i'll say to unions mm. that when and when i say that what i mean is in the ways that it's been set up as like a, a power block that's assertive and that's right that's in this kind of advocacy fight yeah. mode
0: very interesting yeah opposed
1: to being relational and i think there's a way that you can have both and i think I'm looking for those examples actually out in the world right now. We're we're having those conversations because we believe they're out there, but we are seeing that challenge and especially the newer unions that are forming in nonprofits right now is you know, how do you make sure that you are especially because a lot of these organizations have a lot of new leaders of color coming in who then get set up as you know management being
0: oppositional.
1: Right. So it's, it's really so, complicated. so complicated. Yeah, it's really hard. It's hard to talk about, honestly, because you kind of get like, oh, I don't want <laughs> I don't want anybody to think that I pro union, pro-management, and you know, whatever. It's it's really about seeing how can that be a really effective tool for supporting workers to get this liberatory goals that we all want, right? And for managers to be able to hear that well too.
0: Well, and I would just say that in your travels, a model of a nonprofit organization that has a union and a culture that is really healthy would be something that I should I, I should actually shine a light on that by sort of talking about that or with that, that organization on a podcast. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's keep looking together. My last question. One of the things that I feel like I've heard throughout this conversation is that there are skills, mm-hmm. there are skills that people need in our world, generally, in nonprofits in particular, as we diversify, as we, you know, think about you know, if you just think about some of the examples we've talked about today and you think to yourself, if only those leaders had a better ability to X, it would make such a difference. And what if you could leave with some thoughts about, you know, let's, let's assume that, you know, the funder coffers opened up for professional skills development. Right? To to exercise to help someone to learn to build and exercise different kinds of muscles. And I'm not here talking about how to do an effective performance review or any of those things. I'm thinking about the softer skills. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So if you were to send people to soft skills boot camp so that they could engage with you more effectively, what would be in the curriculum? Hmm. It's
1: a great question. I love that. One would be in our fast-paced environments, you know, we as human beings tend to put things in boxes. That's how we survive. (laughs) And we often end up labeling people in our organizations as difficult people. Hmm. And what we try to encourage at Dragonfly is for people to to shift that and see things as difficult conversations that I need to have, right? And I think it's having those difficult conversations that a lot of people don't know how to do. They don't know how to have difficult conversations where maybe there's not somebody who's all right or all wrong, or maybe you have to give some hard feedback to somebody. I think giving and receiving feedback is another one because, and especially when we're talking about race dynamics or dynamics across difference, where folks are afraid to give feedback for fear of being seen as critical or racist or whatever it might be. And that's actually doing. People that you are working under you a disservice to not give them the opportunity to grow and to learn. And so I think that giving and receiving feedback, having difficult conversations and getting real curious with the folks that you work with, being able to really have genuine curiosity about them. So, that you can understand how to make the best use of them too. I mean, that to me, it's strategic, right? It's like, I want to know as much about you so that I can deploy you in this work in a way that's going to be the most effective, right? So, I think some of those are some of the soft skills I would want for the leaders that I work with as well. And I think there are also folks who need to work on their own boundaries. Right. Like some leaders are just all over the place. They don't know they're getting pulled in so many different directions and that's leading them to burnout. I mean, that's the other side of this getting angry coin. And what makes us bad colleagues is that we are burnt out. Um, we feel out of control, right? And I, and I know you use the word targeted before and sometimes it's targeting, sometimes it's collateral damage, right? We're yeah. just like in the wake of somebody who is just real too too strained, right? And they're just like all over everybody around them and they don't even know it or mean it. But I think that's another soft skill I would offer up to the leaders I work with is how do you both create boundaries for yourself and model that? for your staff so that we all can be in this for the long haul.
0: So I heard learning how to have difficult conversations, giving and receiving feedback, learning to be genuinely curious about the stories and the narratives of the people who are your colleagues, who Mm -hmm. they are, what motivates them, sort of prioritizing work to create boundaries, to avoid burnout, to model that, because we are not our best selves, and I'm certainly... I certainly see this in myself a lot, is the more burnout out you are, the less patience you have, and the, and the less able you are to engage in the work of difficult conversations. Yes. The one friendly amendment I might offer you, although it, would, it fits into the first three, and it was one of the most valuable things that I have done, is I became a certified mediator. Mm -hmm. Not because I I wanted to hang out a shingle and say I want to be a certified mediator, but the skill of becoming a mediator has opened me up to the curiosity, to hearing this person's truth and that person's truth and honoring that while actually trying to find that third story, that each person can align around, so I would yeah. that's another that's Love another that. th- that's another thing I think I'd put in the p d portfolio that. that's great yeah, mm-hmm. so thank you, Arthi. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness about this, and I really do think that we're not spending enough time talking about the culture inside our organizations, and that it can in fact thwart our ability to achieve the visions that we create for ourselves. And if, if we have done anything today, Arthi, to get people to be a little bit more reflective about what's happening in their organization and how they might actually become more self-aware and some steps they might take, then, then I think we've probably had a pretty good day at the office.
1: Agreed. Agreed. That's my hope as well. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to be part of this conversation.
0: Well, thank you for the work that you're doing because it is so critical, especially in the world we live in today. So keep up the good work down there at Dragonfly and thank you for your time today. And for those of you who listened, I hope you found the conversation as valuable as I did. Thanks for the work that you do and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangarry.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.